0: This was merely an externally imposed Russian-crafted agreement that halted or suspended warfare. There
1: are a bunch of cases where soldiers' bodies were mutilated after, afterwards and, you know, ears were cut off and those kind of things. It's just remarkable that stuff still happens and that neither side policed that effectively. I
2: don't think anything's going to replace that, the fact that, you know, Russia is at the end of the day really sadly the only reliable potential security guarantor that they have. The naked
3: Hello there. Welcome to the Naked Pravda. I'm your host Kevin Rothrock the English language editing manager, managing editor. That's the one. I'm the managing editor. What am I doing? I'm recording on Friday, November 13th, 2020. And on today's show, we are returning to the subject of a recent episode, the war in Nagorno-Karabakh, which came to a dramatic conclusion, its most recent dramatic conclusion, earlier this week on November 10th, when Russia mediated a truce between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Judging by the map, The situation on the ground will revert mostly to the conditions in place before the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan in 1991. Azerbaijan will deploy artillery to the hills of Shusha, or Shushi, depending on whom you ask, just a few miles outside the capital city of Karabakh, Stepanakert, and the breakaway republic itself will be cut off, essentially, from Armenia. The big difference this time around is the presence of Russian peacekeepers, about 2,000 of them will be there to monitor the ceasefire and offer at least a semblance of safety to the remaining Armenian population, though the mission's initial lifespan is just five years. In four and a half years, Azerbaijan will have the option of booting out the Russians, but it's anybody's guess if they'll actually do that. And then there's Turkey. Oh, there's been so, so much talk about Turkey, which provided vital military assistance to Azerbaijan in this six-week war. We'll get into that a bit more later. And there are now indications that Turkish monitors, but apparently not peacekeepers per se, will be on the ground in Azerbaijan, but not in Karabakh itself. At least not if Russia has anything to say about it, judging by the Kremlin's comments to reporters all week long, emphasizing that the trilateral settlement signed on November 10th don't say nothing about no Turks. Very broadly, that is a geopolitical snapshot. That's the victors dividing up the spoils of what amounts basically to Armenia's defeat. In the days since the Armenian prime minister announced the truce, he's faced protests, including even some rioting, against his decision to capitulate to the nation's arch-enemies in Azerbaijan. He's defended the surrender as a military necessity, saying the country had no alternative. But what happens now? The deal bought Yerevan five years before Russia's peacekeepers are potentially asked to go home.
2: This is the end of this round of the war, for sure. That's Neil Hauer, a
3: Canadian journalist based in the Caucasus, who's reported extensively on conflicts in Georgia, Syria, and Nagorno-Karabakh. He says Armenia's defeat on the ground during the six-week war is undeniable. But the mood in Yerevan right now isn't as hopeless as you might think.
2: There's a lot of people who are saying, okay, this Russian peacekeeper force is going in there for five years, and we got 5 years to get ourselves ready for round number 2 or round number 3 after this one and that you know we we hope that we come to some sort of agreement with the azerbaijanis but we absolutely do not trust them and we don't trust the russians and we got 5 years okay let's get everyone in the ds4 going to let's let's make sure that we are we we know what to do with both the drones this time for the next round so there's definitely no guarantee that this is over i've seen a lot of of commentary arguing
3: that Russia waited as long as it did to to intervene with peacekeeping troops and to sort of to get serious about negotiations because it wanted to politically damage Armenia's, you know, relatively new prime minister. Do you think that this was kind of a political gambit on the Kremlin's part or is it more complicated than that?
2: I don't hugely like that line of analysis. I have, haven't been a huge fan of it throughout the entirety of this because I think they were just you know, sort of caught in a really uncomfortable position where they couldn't intervene. If, if they had intervened directly in favor of – militarily in favor of Armenia at any point, they would have just definitively lost their, all their influence with Azerbaijan. And they actually came out of this in a place where, you know, now they have a base in Karabakh that Azerbaijan has agreed to. So, technically on Azerbaijan territory. Do you think that in Armenia, they'll,
3: they'll appreciate those – Those concerns, or has Moscow burned its bridges to Yerevan now?
2: I mean, there's a lot of talk in different directions here. There's people saying that, you know, Russia uh, has just abandoned us. What kind of ally is this that just we participate in all their political stuff, all their military alliances, and they just abandoned us? And then there's other people saying that, you know, this this is what we get for flirting with the West, and we should have realized that Europe will never come and help us. And the Russians are here. You know, the Russians are the only people who will ever have any any chance of helping us. And so, there is a few different schools of, of thought out there on this. And I, th- I mean, I think it's going to come back to, you know, people have never put it this way. People have never liked the Russians writ large in Armenia. They've never liked the alliance with Russia, and Russia is seen as you know the the tool that propped up Kacharian and Sarkisian, and the they're the just synonymous with corruption here. And Russia, by and large, has always been seen as a necessity in a lot of ways, I think. And for the economic relations as well. I mean, there's so many people who go to work in Russia and it's the biggest trade partner. And so I don't think anything's going to replace that. The fact that, you know, Russia is at the end of the day, really sadly, the only reliable potential security guarantor that they have.
3: In the protesting and even some of the rioting that has erupted since the settlement was announced, have you tracked much anti-Russian rhetoric in any of that, or is it mostly sort of fixed on the Armenian leadership?
2: Really not much anti-Russian stuff. I mean, people are disappointed and upset with Russia, but throughout the course of the war, I think I've seen much more dislike directed at Europe for not intervening in any way or, and just the world community writ large for not taking any steps really significantly, substantially to stop this conflict. Do Do you think,
3: just looking at this conflict and how it's been resolved at this point, do you think that Azerbaijan has been restrained by Russian mediation or did Moscow essentially just come in when things had gotten as far as Baku was ready to take them right now and kind of it they just froze them all over again or do you feel like Russian intervention here has actually played a a role where they've where they've stopped Baku short of something they wanted to achieve in this stage of the
2: conflict. I think there definitely is something very interesting that happened behind the scenes here to get the Azerbaijanis to stop. Because, I mean, as the the Armenians have said themselves, and as was obvious by the fact that, you know, they just drove up from their positions in Southeast Karabakh and into the center and captured Shushi in under a week that, you know, the Armenian army was done. Shushi is like a
3: stone's throw from from the capital of the Berkeley Republic, right?
2: Yeah, it's five kilometers from it, not even, and but it stands six hundred meters above it. So if you have Shushi, you know, you just you command that position, and you can just rain artillery down on it uh, whenever you want. And so once they took Shushi, that was basically it. And I'm sure that they wanted to keep going and take the whole thing, and it would have been bloody in Stepanakert, you know, street fighting and everything. But the outcome was clear.
3: So it looks like a pretty open and shut case, right? The Azerbaijanis triumphed, the Armenians were crushed. Russia and Turkey came out ahead too. Well, not necessarily.
0: I would argue from a broader perspective, counterintuitively, I would argue everyone is a loser.
3: You're listening to Richard Girogosyan, the director of the Regional Studies Center, an independent think tank based in Armenia. Richard acknowledges Armenia's losses on the ground, but he points out that the various gains each winning side made in this war also entailed certain
0: costs. This was neither a peace deal or a peace agreement. This was merely an externally imposed Russian-crafted agreement that halted or suspended warfare. It's not even a ceasefire per se in terms of monitoring, enforcement, and in many ways it raises as many questions as it does provide answers. But more specifically, in the immediate aftermath of this agreement, which I think was, although compelled on Armenia to accept, represents little alternative and no choice for Armenia to accept. What we see is Turkey gains or regains its role as the number one primary military patron for Azerbaijan displacing Russia, which in the past several years has been the number one arms provider to both sides. Second, of course, Russia is a much more demonstrably clear winner in garnering key leverage that it lacked. Specifically, this was the only conflict That was an aberration in terms of the absence of Russian peacekeepers or the absence of a Russian military presence. This has been resolved in their favor with the forcible deployment on the ground even before anyone could react. This was very much a Russian diplomatic initiative where France and the U.S. as fellow mediators of this conflict were left behind.
3: So in your opinion decision makers in Moscow are pleased with the fact that they now have peacekeepers on the ground in Nagorno-Karabakh because my impression, at least reading a lot of kind of op-eds and foreign policy sort of think pieces in the Russian media, there were concerns that that this conflict would drag Russians in and and kind of it would entangle them in, in the conflict in a way that they didn't want to be. And having peacekeepers on the ground would seem to be an entanglement. But you're suggesting that this is actually Part of this was this was an objective of Russian decision makers was to to have a military presence there.
0: Let me explain why the caution that we see articulated by a number of well-respected prominent analysts in Moscow is sound, reasonable, and I concur. The important difference, however, is the Kremlin has never shown hesitation in the danger or risk to their military personnel, whether in seizing Crimea or waging war against Ukraine and the Donbass. In other words, the Kremlin's calculation doesn't follow the logic or the rational actor presumption that the rest of us abide by. In other words, the template is quite different. And for Russia, this is well worth it, especially because For many in Moscow, the absence of a military presence on the ground in this conflict was a notable irritant compared to Georgia, Moldova, etc. It was the unacceptable exception in the so-called near abroad, the sphere of influence for Russia. And moreover, given this region's intersection between Turkey, Russia and Iran, this is a notable achievement for the Kremlin, as a plant the flag. And a deployment of less than 2,000 peacekeepers, lightly armed, is well worth the risk for the geopolitical benefit.
3: Do you think that such a small contingent of peacekeepers, and as you mentioned, you know, just with small arms and, and a few personnel carriers, but no tanks or artillery or anything like that, is that sufficient to actually maintain the peace or if not the peace then hold the stalemate as you described it earlier or is it just
0: it's enough of a symbolic tripwire, like this autoset example or even the balkans kosovo christina airport nevertheless the weakness and vulnerability of the mission and mandate is more about its lack of confidence in its ability to protect and safeguard the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh. I think Azerbaijan is quite happy with with this limited tripwire and will be able to encourage more of an exodus and although not ethnic cleansing as originally feared, more of a demographic victory in terms of The insecurity of relying on Russian peacekeepers for human security is not enough and will encourage a demographic decline, meeting Azerbaijan's true goal. Because the Azerbaijani war for Nagorno-Karabakh was not about the population, it was about seizing back the territory, unfortunately. And I think the weakness of the Russian deployment will only make the Armenians of Karabakh much more insecure. Uh
3: over the next five years, do you expect ethnic Armenians to essentially flee the area, even the areas that are technically under the peacekeeping?
0: Yes, but not voluntarily. In other words, I think much less than five years. Unfortunately, given the track record, given the history, I do think it's going to be much sooner, much quicker, with much less resistance from the Russians deployed.
3: They might have to leave, but not voluntarily. What does that mean exactly? Because if they're under you know, Russian protection, so to speak, is somebody knocking on their door and telling them to get out? or
0: No, no. Uh, what, what I predict in that context is looking back at the 1990s in both examples, the Armenian community of Baku and Azerbaijani cities forced to voluntarily depart without belongings, without their, their resources and the Azerbaijani community from Armenia, which was also forcibly encouraged, if you will, to depart. There was a population exchange, not under the force of arms, not at gunpoint, but coercive enough. And given that track record, and the fact that this is the Caucasus and not Switzerland, I am more gloomily predicting a scenario like that, especially for the remnants of Nagorno-Karabakh, Because the lifeline to Armenia is now a very vulnerable, small corridor or road. It's only guarantee for protection is a few lightly armed Russian peacekeepers, meaning that a family of eight children, the parents are not going to feel very reassured in terms of staying or even going back and forth.
1: Cases where soldiers' bodies were mutilated after afterwards, and you know, ears were cut off, and those kind of things. So, you know that that was that was a, a grim thing that happened in 2016. It's a grim thing that's happened in this conflict a few times. But it's, it's just remarkable that stuff still happens, and that neither side policed that effectively. Right, and it's not to say that it was it was you know, equal, but I saw atrocities committed by both sides, and both sides then posted them on, on, on video, and, and it's remarkable that. You know, the military and the leadership didn't do something about that.
3: That's Rob Lee, a former Marine engineer officer and a current PhD student at King's College, London. When he was in the U.S. military, he was deployed to the Republic of Georgia, where he helped train one of their battalions before he was sent to Afghanistan. He's been tracking the fighting in Karabakh intensively. Check his Twitter page to see just what I mean. I asked Rob what we know about the fighting on the ground. That's when he described the war crimes you just heard about. And I got him to explain the drones that reportedly made all the difference in Azerbaijan's success over this six-week war. Without these unmanned aircraft, the war that just concluded would have been something entirely different.
1: When you're looking for that kind of explanatory variable of what changed. Why, you know, to me, that, that variable is, is Turkey, number one. And two, it's these uh, TB2 unmanned combat aerial vehicles that, that Turkey brought. And you know, I think most likely, Turkish crews are probably operating them on behalf of Azerbaijan. And so the, the difference is that when we talk about Unmanned Combat Aerial Vehicle, or UCAV for short, that's kind of like we talk, talk about in the U.S., a Reaper or a Predator. And those UAVs, not only can they, they have you know good cameras and can you know observe things day and night, they can also drop munitions. And so Turkey has made UCAVs a really important focus of this defense industry and its military the last you know, five, six, more than that years. And basically the big difference this time Is that in the fighting in 2016 in July, Azerbaijan did not have any of these TB2s? And then in September, you know, all of a sudden, and and, and we found out by the first video they posted, which was you know Kurway TB2 footage, they now had TB twos. And so basically what 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 happened was you know, right away in the beginning of the conflict, Turkey focused on destroying Nagarkar box air defenses. And you know, most of the early videos, I think we see videos of 20 to 30, you know, Krug, Kub, Osa, Strelatin. Or you know S two hundred systems getting destroyed, and it was pretty clear that a lot of these systems had had difficulty picking up the TB twos on the radar. And so basically, after the first you know week or so, a lot of the go-to-car the box air defenses had been destroyed. And, and from then on, either they were, they were not in, in in service, or they basically had to be very protective about how to use them. So they couldn't keep their radars on at all times, right? Where you can you can ping a radar to, to see that it's in operation. They had to put under you know significant concealment. Basically, it, it made it so it was much more difficult to use these systems. And what happened is for, for the rest of the conflict, essentially, Azerbaijan was able to keep these TB2s overhead pretty much constantly, right? D- at daytime, nighttime. Armenian forces couldn't counterattack. They, 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 they weren't able to because anytime you try you, you to try mass forces together, the TB2 is going to pick them up and they're going to start hitting them, whether it's infantry or it's, you know, it's tanks or infantry fighting vehicles.
3: Are there more modern anti- Air defenses that can hit these TB2s, these Turkish drones?
1: Yeah, there are. So and a lot of it comes down to you know which side is, is using them more competently. If if air defense to be using competently, and especially if you've got a real integrated air defense system where you have you know, long range, medium range, short range systems, that would be difficult for uh, a lot of UCAVs to operate in that. At the same time, you can obviously use you know F-16s, cruise missiles, other kind of longer range assets that, that UCAVs don't have. And that can be used to defeat some of these systems to support UCAS. So you know, in, in, in that kind of fighting, it's not that one side has a, has a complete advantage over the other. It depends how they're used. And they, they, they both have advantages.
3: Does Armenia have any chance of, of kind of catching up or bettering its military strength in the next five years? Because that's what the, the term of the peacekeeping settlement right now is five years and then they'll, you know, revisit it, I guess, or it automatically renews if nobody withdraws. But from what I've gathered, a lot of people believe that Armenia is sort of, they, they view this and, I mean, I suppose Azerbaijan as well, but they're viewing this as this as a period to kind of catch their breath and, and brace themselves for what will presumably be another phase of the war given that the the Karabakh Republic you know, still exists even though it's lost a lot of its uh, territory in this latest round of fighting. Does Armenia have a chance here? Or is it really the way you described the the Turkish drones role in the, the in this fighting? It sounds as though Armenia relies will rely entirely on Russian or, or, you know, foreign assistance if it if it intends to kind of defend this territory in the future,
1: it's going to be tough. You know, the, the big difference is that over the 2000s, Azerbaijan is, is a big hydrocarbon exporter. And so they you know, profited handsomely from the, the rise of global oil prices in the mid-2000s. Armenia does not have nearly the same kind of valuable natural resources. And so that, that alone basically put Armenia back. And, you know, one, one of the reasons, you know, people kept expecting another conflict to happen here was that Azerbaijan spent so much of that money on on their military and on all these arms, arms imports. It's, you know, they, they purchased about $5 billion worth of weapons from Russia starting in 2008 to like 2011. They purchased about the same amount from, from Israel with, you know, loitering munitions, UAVs, precision guided munitions. And then recently from Turkey, they purchased a large number as well. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the status was, you know, how much that was granted from Turkey or, or, or how much they purchased. But, the, you know, the issue is that Armenia is, you know, th- th- there, there aren't, there aren't the prospects, I think economically that Armenia is going to grow that quickly and it's a small country. It's not that rich of a country. And so it, it you know, the issue is that they can look to Russia, but, I I don't think they have much leverage over Russia right now to ask for for that much. Russia's provided um, two loans for I think three hundred million dollars worth of weapons back after twenty sixteen, and and Armenia purchased a lot of stuff. Some of it they they, they made some bad decisions. So they they purchased uh, four Su thirty SM fighters from from Russia, which played no role in conflict. So I mean they're they're quite expensive fighters. They could have spent that money on air defenses, right? They could have bought more Tor you know Tor M two air defense systems, which you know could have played a role so may- maybe they changed some of those procurement decisions around but ultimately it depend on Russia for this and if you're Russia are you going to give them enough weapons where they could change the balance of power once again in the region I, I know I-, I would say probably not.
3: The military picture for Armenia isn't great. In five years, when the fighting could conceivably resume, it's hard to imagine the country mounting a significantly better defense of Karabakh, let alone reclaiming some of the territory it's lost since September. For all the glory and conquest that's fueled the jubilation in Baku, however, Azerbaijan's future is hardly assured either. Here the uncertainty is political, not military, and the questions surround Azerbaijan's dictator, Ilham Aliyev
2: says Neil Hauer. Ilham Aliyev is the hero now. He recovered Karabakh. He won the Karabakh War. You know, he went in there and he got it. But then two is that, well, he didn't get all of it. He only got part of it. And now there's a Russian base on his soil and so the, the rest of it is probably out of reach. And then, you know, also this was the card that they used to justify everything that they did for the, the, the last 25 years in Azerbaijan to justify, you know, the state of extreme authoritarian government that they had. And saying that now is not the time. We have the external enemy that we have to worry about. We have to be united for Karabakh, and it worked for the war. You know, it worked. Everyone fell into line. Even the the hardcore uh, opposition activists who have been in prison fell into line. But now this is, I think, largely gone. This card, and so. I wonder what the statute of limitations is going to be on this before the, you know, the war fervor and the, the thrill of victory starts to wear off. And, you know, the realities of the, the, both the human rights situation in Azerbaijan and then uh, the economic situation, which is not good. I mean, it's a commodity based, oil based economy that peaked about five, six years ago and it is not going to go back up. So. I think that there is going to be you know, that, that whether Aliyev, Ilham Aliyev is still in power in five years from now is not a completed question.
3: Richard Geregosyan also says the Caucasus future remains unclear, despite the apparent clarity of Armenia's defeat in this stage of the war.
0: President Aliyev has managed to ride the tiger of nationalism and war and delivered in the face of dangerously high expectations. What worries me? are two factors. One is he's unable to meet the next demand from the population. COVID-19 management and economic recovery from COVID-19. Given the global fall in oil prices, given the Dutch disease, the lack of diversification of the Azerbaijani economy, there's little likelihood that a rather corrupted government in Azerbaijan will be able to deliver the economic demands that are now coming quickly after there was jubilation and satisfaction over an end to the nationalist rhetoric and politics. The second observation here is this is a scenario where Azerbaijan already has a history of a military coup the civil-military relationship is strained, and both Turkey and Russia will be interested in direct intervention within domestic politics in Azerbaijan, unlike Armenia. And hence, we're preparing now for a more dangerous, unstable Azerbaijan, just as we are preparing for a Russia that's more dangerous the day after Putin.
3: You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English-language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we heard from three experts on the Caucasus about the recent settlement in the Nagorno-Karabakh War, Richard Grigosian, Neil Hauer, and Rob Lee. On next week's show, we'll turn to declassified archives from the late 1990s and early 2000s for a look at the beta version of Vladimir Putin's diplomacy, which was something very different from the diplomacy and foreign policy that he's known for today. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa, our only English-language show. And I hope you recommend us to your friends. And this is important. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in because it helps put this program in front of more people. That's how these algorithms work. It's computers. It's it's, uh, zeros and ones. Thank you for listening and come back soon.